Chapter Twelve, Book Four of Rookwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Paul Curran. Rookwood by William Harrison Ainsworth. Book Four, Chapter Twelve Corwood Ferry. The sight renewed my courser's feet, a moment staggering feebly fleet. A moment with a faint low neigh he answered, and then fell. With gasps and glazing eyes he lay, and reeking limbs immovable, his first and last career was done. Mazeppa. The sun had just o'ertopped the high eastern hill, as Turpin reached the ferry of Corwood, and his beams were reflected upon the deep and sluggish waters of the Ouse. Wearily had he dragged his course thither, wearily and slow, the powers of his gallant steed were spent, and he could scarcely keep her from sinking. It was now midway twixt the hours of five and six. Nine miles only lay before him, and that thought again revived him. He reached the water's edge, and hailed the ferry-boat, which was then on the other side of the river. At that instant a loud shout smote his ear. It was the halloo of his pursuers. Despair was in his look. He shouted to the boatman and bade him pull fast. The man obeyed, but he had to breast a strong stream, and had a lazy bark and heavy skulls to contend with. He had scarcely left the shore when another shout was raised from the pursuers. The tramp of their steeds grew louder and louder. The boat had scarcely reached the middle of the stream. His captors were at hand. Quietly did he walk down the bank, and as cautiously enter the water. There was a plunge and steed and rider were swimming down the river. Major Mowbray was at the brink of the stream. He hesitated an instant, and stemmed the tide. Seized, as it were, by a mania for equestrian distinction, Mr. Coates braved the torrent. Not so Patterson. He very coolly took out his bulldogs, and watching Turpin, cast up in his own mind the pros and cons of shooting him as he was crossing. "'I could certainly hit him,' thought, or said the constable. But what of that? A dead highwayman is worth nothing. Alive, he weighs three hundred. I won't shoot him, but I'll make a pretense. And he fired accordingly. The shot skimmed over the water, but did not, as it was intended, do much mischief. It, however, occasioned a mishap, which had nearly proved fatal to our aquatic attorney. Alarmed at the report of the pistol, in the nervous agitation of the moment, Coates drew in his rein so tightly that his steed instantly sank. A moment or two afterwards he rose, shaking his ears, and floundering heavily towards the shore. And such was the chilling effect of this sudden immersion, that Mr. Coates now thought much more of saving himself than of capturing Turpin. Dick, meanwhile, had reached the opposite bank, and, refreshed by her bath, Bess scrambled up the sides of the stream, and speedily regained the road. "'I shall do it yet!' shouted Dick. "'That stream has saved her! Hark away, lass! Hark away!' Bess heard the cheering cry, and she answered to the call. She roused all her energies, strained every sinew, and put forth all her remaining strength. Once more, on the wings of swiftness, she bore him away from his pursuers, and Major Mowbray, who had now gained the shore, and made certain of securing him, beheld him spring like a wounded hare from beneath his very hand. "'It cannot hold out,' said the Major. "'It is but an expiring flash.' "'That gallant steed must soon drop. "'She be regularly booked, that's certain.' 
said the postboy. We shall find her on the road. Contrary to all expectation, however, Bess held on, and set pursuit at defiance. Her pace was swift as when she started, but it was unconscious and mechanical action. It wanted the ease, the lightness, the life of her former riding. She seemed screwed up to a task which she must execute. There was no flogging, no gory heel, but the heart was throbbing, tugging at the sides within. Her spirit spurred her onwards, her eyes were glazing, her chest heaving, her flank quivering, her crest again fallen. Yet she held on. "'She's dying,' said Dick. "'I, I feel it.' No, she held on. Fulford is past. The towers and pinnacles of York burst upon him in all the freshness, the beauty, and the glory of a bright, clear autumnal morn. The ancient city seemed to smile a welcome, a greeting. The noble minster and its serene and massive pinnacles, crocketed, lantern-like, and beautiful. St. Mary's lofty spire, All Hallows Tower, the massive mouldering walls of the adjacent postern, the grim castle, and Clifford's neighbouring keep all beamed upon him like a bright-eyed face that laughs out openly. "'It is done! It is won!' cried Dick. "'Hurrah! Hurrah!' And the sunny air was cleft with his shouts. Bess was not insensible to her master's exultation. She neighed feebly in answer to his call, and reeled forwards. It was a piteous sight to see her, to mark her staring, protruding eyeball, her shaking flanks. But— while life and limb held together, she held on. Another mile is past. York is near. Hurrah! shouted Dick. But his voice was hushed. Bess tottered. Fell. There was a dreadful gasp, a parting moan, a snort. Her eye gazed for an instant upon her master with a dying glare, then grew glassy, rayless, fixed. A shiver ran through her frame. Her heart had burst. Dick's eyes were blinded as with rain. His triumph, though achieved, was forgotten. His own safety was disregarded. He stood weeping and swearing like one beside himself. "'And art thou gone, Bess?' cried he, in a voice of agony, lifting up his courser's head and kissing her lips, covered with blood-flecked foam. "'Gone! Gone! And I've killed the best steed that was ever crossed!' "'And for what?' added Dick, beating his brow with his clenched hand. "'For what? For what?' At this moment the deep bell of the minster clock told out the hour of six. "'I am answered,' gasped Dick. "'It was to hear those strokes.' Turpin was roused from the state of stupefaction into which he had fallen by a smart slap on the shoulder. Recalled to himself by the blow, he started at once to his feet, while his hands sought his pistols, but he was spared the necessity of using them by discovering in the intruder the bearded visage of the gypsy Balthazar. The patrico was habited in mendicant weeds, and sustained a large wallet upon his shoulders. "'So!' "'It is all over with the best mare in England, I see,' said Balthazar. "'I can guess how it has happened. You are pursued.' "'I am,' said Dick, roughly. "'Your pursuers are at hand, within a few hundred yards.' "'Then why stay here? 
fly while you can never never cried turpin i'll fight it out here by bess's side poor lass i've killed her but she has done it ha we have won what and his utterance was again choked hark i hear the tramp of horse and shouts cried the patrico take this wallet you will find a change of dress within it dart into that thick copse save yourself but bess i cannot leave her exclaimed dick with an agonizing look at his horse and what did bess die for but to save you rejoined the patrico true true said dick but take care of her don't let those dogs of hell meddle with her carcass away cried the patrico leave bess to me possessing himself of the wallet dick disappeared into the adjoining copse he had not been gone many seconds when major mowbray rode up who is this exclaimed the major flinging himself from his horse and seizing the patrico this is not turpin certainly not replied balthazar coolly i am not exactly the figure for the highwayman where is he what has become of him asked coates in despair as he and patterson joined the major escaped i fear replied the major have you seen any one fellow added he addressing the patrico i have seen no one replied balthazar i am only this instant arrived this dead horse lying in the road attracted my attention ha exclaimed patterson leaping from his steed this may be turpin after all he has as many disguises as the devil himself and may have carried that goat's hair in his pocket saying which he seized the patrico by the beard and shook it with as little reverence as the gaul handled the hirsute chin of the roman senator the devil hands off roared balthazar by salamon i won't stand such usage do you think a beard like mine is the growth of a few minutes hands off i say regularly done said patterson removing his hold of the patrico's chin and looking as blank as a cartridge ay exclaimed coates all owing to this worthless piece of carrion if it were not that i hope to see him dangling from those walls pointing towards the castle i should wish her master were by her side now to the dogs with her and he was about to spurn the breathless carcass of poor bess when a sudden blow dealt by the patrico's staff felled him to the ground i'll teach you to molest me said balthazar about to attack patterson come come said the discomfited chief constable no more of this it's plain we're in the wrong box every bone in my body aches sufficiently without the aid of your cudgel old fellow come mr coates take my arm and let's be moving we've had an infernal long ride for nothing not so replied coates i've paid pretty dearly for it however let us see if we can get any breakfast at the bowling green yonder though i've already had my morning draught added the facetious man of law looking at his dripping apparel poor black bess said major mowbray wistfully regarding the body of the mare as it lay stretched at his feet thou deservest a better fate and a better master in thee dick turpin has lost his best friend his exploits will henceforth want the colouring of romance which thy unfailing energies threw over them light lie the ground over thee thou matchless mare to the bowling green the party proceeded leaving the patrico in undisturbed possession of the lifeless body of black bess major mowbray ordered a substantial repast to be prepared with all possible expedition a countryman in a smock frock was busily engaged at his morning's meal to see that fellow bolt down his breakfast one would think he had fasted for a month 
said Coates. See the wholesome effects of an honest, industrious life, Patterson. I envy him his appetite. I should fall to with more zest were Dick Turpin in his place. The countryman looked up. He was an odd-looking fellow with a terrible squint and a strange, contorted countenance. "'An ugly dog!' exclaimed Patterson. "'What a devil of a twist he has got!' "'What's that you says about Dick Tarpin, mister?' asked the countryman, with his mouth half full of bread. "'Have you seen aught of him?' asked Coates. "'Not I,' mumbled the rustic. "'But I hears all the folks hereabouts talk on him. "'They say as how he sets all the lawyers and constables at defiance, "'and laughs in his sleeve at their efforts to cotch him. "'Ah, he gets over more ground in a day than they do in a week. Oh, ho, 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 ho. "'That's all over now,' said Coach peevishly. "'He has cut his own throat, ridden his famous mare to death.' "'The countryman almost choked himself in the attempt to bolt a huge mouthful. "'Aye, indeed, maester. How happened that?' asked he, so soon as he recovered speech. "'The fool rode her from London to York last night,' returned Coates. "'Such a feat was never performed before. "'What horse could be expected to live through such work as that?' "'Ah, it were a fool to attempt that,' observed the countryman. "'But you followed belike?' "'We did.' "'And took him out to all, I reckon?' asked the rustic, squinting more horribly than ever. "'No,' returned Coates. "'I can't say we did. "'But we'll have him yet.' "'I'm pretty sure he can't be far off. "'We may be nearer him than we imagine.' "'Maybe so, mister,' returned the countryman. "'But I might be so bold as to ask how many horses you used in the chase. "'Some half-dozen, maybe.' "'Half a dozen,' growled Patterson. "'We had twenty at the least.' "'And I, one,' mentally ejaculated Turpin, "'for he was the countryman.' End of chapter 12, book 4